Funding for Still Newtown is made possible in part by a grant from Connecticut Humanities. It was a few days after the elementary school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, in May of this year. Newtown, Connecticut residents filed through the open doors of Trinity Episcopal Church in the heart of Newtown. They took candles and found spots in the pews. We simply wanted to open our doors to our community and to offer hospitality and safe space, sacred space, to give us room to lament, to pray, to rage, to hope. This is holy ground, and we here tonight are a solemn assembly. Reverend Andrea Wyatt opened the candlelight vigil. The vigil was co-organized by the Newtown Action Alliance, an anti-gun violence advocacy group founded after the Sandy Hook shooting 10 years ago. We are here to stand in solidarity with the people of Uvalde, Texas. And we gather to offer to our neighbors in Uvalde, in Buffalo, in so many places, the hard wisdom that this town has gained in almost 10 years of suffering. And so we offer our compassion, our heartbreak, our support to our friends in Texas as you begin to walk a road folks in this town know so well. We stand with Uvalde. You are not alone. There is a healing power, a transforming grace, a fierce hope, an audacious spirit. My prayer this night is that we feel a little bit of that power and go and share it. One of the people who spoke that night was psychiatrist John Woodall, a member of the Newtown Baha'i community. I left my wife at home crying on our bed. Um, Her last words to me is, I can't go to another vigil for murdered children. Um, I wanted to stay with her. I feel the same way. Can't do this again. We lift up our hearts together to God and we, we ask for his grace and his mercy. And we know it's there, but this heartbreak is deep. Something has to change. We must, we must find new ways to honor the life we all share. No two people's stories are the same, but whether it's through faith in God or a renewed faith in community, For some in Newtown, including some who lost loved ones, the last decade has been a journey of discovering and kindling hope. This is Still Newtown from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan. Newtown's Catholic Church is called St. Rose of Lima. Lord be with you. Monsignor Robert Weiss has led the church for more than 20 years. To his parishioners, he's known as Father Bob. He remembers that first night after the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting, December 14, 2012. 
The Monsignor had spent a long day at the Sandy Hook Firehouse, where students and parents were gathered. Then he went back to the church to get ready for an evening mass. The grounds were already filled with people. And we had the windows of the church and the doors open so people could hear. But there were just gatherings everywhere on this property, you know, because people needed a place to be. And because we didn't have a, a center, the churches became the places to be, the houses of worship. And uh, I know we stayed open for days. We never closed uh, just so people had a place to gather. Nine of those who died that day belonged to Monsignor Weiss's church. That night, he went with a state trooper and grief counselor to some of the victims' homes to give the final confirmation of their passing. So I got back uh, from that around 2 o'clock in the morning, and I walked into the church, and there were two pews of of, uh, college kids who had all gone to St. Rose School kneeling there saying the rosary, and I thought, they got it. You know, (laughs) all those years, they really got the need. The next few days were tough. Someone called in a death threat to the church a few days later, making reference to the shooting. It just, you know, dawned me, like, when does this end? You know, how much more? St. Rose of Lima sifted through hundreds of thousands of letters and all kinds of donations, from cookies to Christmas ornaments. They held funerals for some of the victims. Monsignor Weiss remembers one mother's eulogy. It was just love, you know, and you you didn't really get to know my child like I knew my child, and I want you to know who my child was, and they were powerful, powerful eulogies, Uh, and I thought to myself that probably was the beginning of some kind of healing for these people because it was unexplainable, but I think the fact that these mothers got up one after another and just spoke so eloquently about their child, and with humor, with love, you know, very honest, but I did. I did think immediately. You know, these—they've already started on a path to healing, with the courage to do this. There's a question a lot of people in Newtown get asked by reporters like me. So, how are you doing? I try not to ask that question too much. The question is too simple, and the answer is too complicated. Life is too messy in the best of times to give a solid answer. As we've heard throughout this podcast, and I hope you've noticed. There is joy, hope, and resilience. Monsignor Weiss, he's seen it too. But you still can hear the sadness as much as they've grown and and are doing. You can still hear the sadness. And a lot of them are going to be empty nesters as of this year. There are two families in particular. Both of their children are going off to college. And one mother said to me, "I'm, I'm frightened. You know, what am I going to hold on to? So that's going to be another whole new dimension. Um, Some of them have really struggled horribly, um, you know, trying to get through this whole thing. So, you know, they're all in a different place. You know, there's no no one description of Sandy Hook families, you know. They've each taken their own direction. As for Monsignor Weiss, he was supposed to retire last year when he turned 75, as per Catholic Church rules. And I ask, because next year is my 50th anniversary, I've always been a parish priest. And I really wanted to celebrate it as a parish priest. Not just that. He wanted to see the town through to mark 10 years since the tragedy. He felt the sense of duty. A lot of the town's leaders have retired. The first selectman's gone. The school superintendent's gone. The police chief is gone. Half of the ministers have left. There are very few of us who are really involved in the heart of this thing. So he wrote a letter to the bishop of his diocese and asked to stay on for a few more years. His request was granted. Monsignor Robert Weiss's term has been extended. 
I think it's causing people just to look at where are their roots. How do you get through something like this? And what do you do, not just for yourself, but for your spouse and for your family? But I, I do think of the legacy of this will be the power of community. You don't need a lot of bells and whistles. You just need a lot of hearts and hands. I mean, there are people that, that to this day said, I never even met this neighbor I lived next door to for four years until this happened. As a community, if you pull yourself together, you can get through these things. And it was just demonstrated magnificently. I mean, it was amazing, the love and the care that existed in this community. Scripture tells us, do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. Two days after the tragedy, the community came together at Newtown High School for an interfaith prayer vigil. President Obama spoke, and so did many of Newtown's faith leaders. I offer you this prayer from my heart to your hearts on behalf of all of your children, all of your loved ones. The Hebrew memorial prayer, please rise. Former Newtown Rabbi Shaul Praver. Rabbi Praver says the tragedy changed his world. Suddenly all the walls of your town have been pulled away, and now you're not in a small town, now you're in the eye of the world. The day after the prayer vigil, Rabbi Praver led the first memorial service for the youngest victim, six-year-old Noah Posner. He found himself counseling the grieving. The idea of a soul, these things are very, very important. However you understand those kinds of things, but it's not so much for me to say how they should understand it, And sometimes you just need something to help you get through it from one moment to the next. But I could see that um, God helped me and gave me some good instincts to sort of dig down deep to everything that I had learned in my life at that point. Not long after that, he came to a decision. Just like everybody else, I was trying to heal. And it actually knocked me right off the pulpit, right into uh, correctional chaplaincy. He spent the next nine years as a prison chaplain. So I uh, went into that feeling that if souls were taken, then I want to face this issue of violence in America directly where I can have a, a greater impact. Rabbi Praver worked with inmates to help them understand themselves and their past. The hope was when they left prison, they would be less likely to commit crimes. And he's looking for more ways to have that kind of an impact, as many others are too. So I, I do believe that that Newtown is still a bridge to a a new and kinder world. And it's 10 years sounds like a lot of time, but it's not. It feels very recent still. It's very raw. And there is so much to be done yet. We'll return after a short break. When we do, the mother of a Sandy Hook victim wrestles with God at her kitchen table and finds peace. 
this is still Newtown. Soon after the country's shutdown in March of 2020, Texas Public Radio launched a podcast hosted by health reporter Bonnie Petrie called Petri Dish. So today, what I want to do is kind of introduce you to this virus because for me, information is comforting. Maybe that's true for you too. COVID was the focus then, but now Bonnie covers must-hear stories, like how Texas is looking at mental health access since the shooting at Robb Elementary School earlier this year. So, I mean, it's something that needs to be addressed in rural communities, not just in Texas, but in other states, too, have been left behind. Petri Dish from Texas Public Radio can be found wherever you get your podcasts. This is Still Newtown from WSHU Public Radio. I'm Davis Donovan. My upbringing rooted me in Catholicism. Um, Losing Catherine rooted me in having a relationship with God. Jenny Hubbard is the mother of Catherine Violet Hubbard, who died at Sandy Hook Elementary School. I grew up, (laughs) we call it cradle Catholics, Um, but I grew up knowing that you went to church on Sunday and you said your prayers and you said grace and you followed the, the rules of the church and you did what you were supposed to do. But life happened, she says, as she got older. She went to college and became, in her words, a workaholic. She worked in sales and marketing. Her church going trailed off. She was living in Buffalo, New York, when her son, Freddie, was born. She says it was a rough birth. Freddie was put in the newborn intensive care unit. And I remember one day just looking out the window and and just having this strange conversation with God and asking God if he he remembered and, and would he do me this favor. And it was just this sort of innate moment of I knew not what else to do. For most of us that come back to faith, um, there's something transformative in our lives that we realize that this is really out of our control. So I made a deal with God that day, um, and I said to God that if, if my son came home, that I would start going to church. Freddie did come home, and Jenny did start going to church. She and her family moved to Newtown in 2005, just before Catherine was born. Jenny says those next years were some of the happiest of her life. Being in the yard with my kids and seeing their wonder and their awe of creation, the flock of birds that would show up in the front yard was something that Catherine would marvel at, and she'd go tearing off. The birds would just take flight, and it was this beautiful space of seeing God's majesty in in the quietest of details. Everything I had believed in or hoped for was shaken up in a, in a matter of a morning on December 14th. And when you're left with nothing, you have the choice of getting real or curling up in a ball. Um, and, you know, I, I think because of my son, I couldn't curl up into a ball. Freddie was a third grader and went back to school about a month after the tragedy, along with other Sandy Hook Elementary School students. They went to Chalk Hill, a school in nearby Monroe that was repurposed to host students from Sandy Hook. 
Jenny says it was important to get back into a routine, as difficult as that was. And so the night before, the normal routine for me was to put the kids' lunchboxes out and get set up for the next day. And it's amazing, because when you do something in the dark, <laughs> it doesn't seem so bad. But the next morning, the light was coming into the, into the kitchen, and, and the reality that there was only one lunchbox there hit hard. Um, and I knew, I knew that I needed to pack this lunchbox. Um, so Freddie was up getting ready for school and I was packing the lunchbox. And, you know, with each step in making that, filling up that lunchbox, it was horrible. It was this awful realization that I had made this commitment. I now have to live my life and I don't know how I was going to do it. And it all came down to this little tiny note that I put in the lunchbox. And it was, I think, a reminder for Freddie and a reminder for me that you know, we are loved in the midst of all of it. I think God uses that which he knows we can do. And as difficult as it was, or as easy as it would have been to say, you know what, nope, we're not going to school today. I can't pack this lunchbox. I did it, and I was able to send him on his way, and he could open up that lunchbox at school and realize that it was okay to live life. Jenny took to sitting at her kitchen table, praying and reading the Bible. Just read, read, and read. And then I started finding commonalities with the characters. She especially connected with the character of Jacob from the book of Genesis. And he is wrestling with God. He wants some answers, and he falls asleep. And he dreams of this ladder of angels coming and going from heaven. And Jacob had been through a lot. He wanted answers, and he wanted answers now. So at my point, I wanted answers. I felt like I was doing everything I possibly could, that I was trying really hard to be this mother, helping a, a grieving son, and to be a wife, and keep it all together. And I was one of the parents who lost, who was this good and faithful person. And so I had this feeling that I wasn't allowed to show any sort of sadness or anger. And I sat at my kitchen table. I started wrestling with God, asking the same questions as, you know, do you see me? Do you hear me? Um, are you even there? People, when they would say, you know, well, you must miss Catherine, or you probably want her back, I would always say, no, I don't want her back. I didn't know what Jenny meant at first when she said that, but she believes that Catherine is in heaven, where she's meant to be. Heaven is where we're all intended, and with Catherine being so upset when she'd go to school. She would, she would cry, and she would not want to be there, and she was anxious. Um, I felt like her being in heaven was where she was safest. Would I love to know what a 16-year-old Catherine would be? Absolutely, but that's not my reality. And so I would always say to people, I just kind of want a ladder. Jacob's ladder because I don't want to take heaven away from her. But I also want to see her. I want to I want to hug her. I want to feel her. I want to sit with her. Jenny says some of the most beautiful moments of her last 10 years have been spent at her kitchen table. 
the morning for me was was the sacred time of of stillness. It was the only time during that period where I could sit and really feel at peace. She liked the way the sun came through the windows and warmed the kitchen. I'd always thought about where would I go when my world collapsed? Like, where on earth would I run to? Would it be a beach? Would it be the forest? And I never really, I, I never knew where that place was going to be. And never did I think it would be my kitchen table. And on the days where it seemed like I had reached the end of my ropes and things weren't working out or, or Freddie was upset or my marriage was in turmoil, that sun would hit the sky at the perfect right moment and the rays would come through my window and it was it was as if heaven was reaching down and just drawing me in like just as if to say just sit here for a little bit just sit with us because i'm here jenny went through a divorce in 2019 she says the divorce tested her faith but ultimately her faith helped her get through it the worst thing that I can do is see Catherine and have to look her in the face and say, I couldn't pull it together. Like, for Catherine, for my son, for the people that I'm around, I think that we have an obligation to each other, to our families, to our children, to our parents, to live our lives to our fullest. And she says things are looking up. She feels hopeful about the animal sanctuary she's creating in Catherine's memory. And her son, Freddie, is finishing his first semester of college. It's a new season. And it's not this grief that spur out of this sort of terror and trauma. It's a natural progression. It's what it should be. But it's grief in its own sense. And I'm sure that the things that I learned losing Catherine and going through the divorce will just kick in as those days become sad or hard or whatever, whatever emotion's going to come up. We grow through each one of them. That's the Islamic call to prayer, sung earlier this year at Newtown's Trinity Episcopal Church during the vigil for victims of the Uvalde, Texas school shooting. It was sung by Miriam Aziz. She didn't attend Sandy Hook growing up, but she was a Newtown first grader 10 years ago. Her mother, Aman Beshtawi, is president of Newtown's Islamic Center. Our kids' lives are on the line. Speaking truth to power has always been one of the great acts of worship. Ten years after Sandy Hook, here we are again. Let us fight this public health crisis by all means possible. Our Lord, perfect our light, and forgive us. Surely you have full power over everything. In your illuminating names, I pray. Amen. 
There were many speakers from Newtown's religious community that night, like Reverend Matthew Krebin, pastor of the Newtown Congregational Church, United Church of Christ. He also coordinates Newtown's Interfaith Clergy Association. I'm Reverend Matthew Krebin, one of the pastors present at the firehouse nearly 10 years ago. As we began our own journey dealing with unimaginable trauma and loss, and I'm going to offer a prayer today. My understanding of prayer as a Christian pastor is that prayer is an act of praying for transformation of oneself and one's community, of opening oneself up to God's leadings. So prayer is not a means to end a conversation, but rather it is the beginning of a transformed life that engages in the world. Reverend Krebin has spent most of his career trying to engage with the world. He grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in a family of scientists. I was a black sheep of the family, you know, um, not in terms of like, oh my gosh, you know, we're anti-religion, but just um, it's scientific, intellectual, the idea that, you know, we engage the whole world and using all of our faculties and not just thinking sometimes as people do that faith is this little aspect that, um, that, that people just rely on as a crutch to avoid intellectual rigor. Reverend Krebin thinks a lot about wisdom, especially in the 10 years since the tragedy. Wisdom is this fleeting thing, as wisdom and grief is fleeting, too. And, and to suggest that, you know, oh, here, here's your grief, and if you just get here, you'll be wise and, and everything will be right. So for each person, it's unique. I think there are some things, that, that general things that we learn over the years about, what I would describe as, as the, the teachings of wisdom. Um, the teaching of wisdom is uh, very often we find deeper compassion for others than, than what we had before. We learn ways of being patient uh, with ourselves and with others. Remember how I said reporters are always asking Newtowners, how are you doing? Reverend Krebin says he gets that question a lot, too, when he tells people where he's from. I say, yeah, Newtown, people ask me, oh, how's Newtown doing? I say, well, Newtown's broken, you know. We've been broken by this. And I remember getting a letter from somebody who said, oh, my God, I can't believe you told we're broken. We're not broken. The nerve, I said, well, but for me, brokenness is that, you know, as uh, there's that great Leonard Cohen line, you know, there's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in, but it's also how the light gets out. You know, and so brokenness itself is, is an ability, if we understand ourselves as broken, that's not defeat. That's the ability then to say, what do I do in this brokenness? How, how is that my light shining out? And how is the light of, for me, the light of God, the light of grace, of love, of mercy, um, how is that finding its way into me and then also out of me? So you said something interesting just now about um, somebody from town saying, you know, we're not broken. Do you get that sense that everybody kind of has their own way of, of seeing what the past 10 years have been? Well, I definitely think there's, you know, if you have 10 people from Newtown in a room, there's probably like about 15 responses of like where everybody is. Uh, and definitely, as you just said, healing is a, is a challenging word. Some people, you know, look at healing and say, yes, we've healed. Um, I think some of the most people who have maybe the deepest scars and the, and the pain would not use that language of healing. I think one of the things I learned from a number of folks was that, that the word itself, healing, you know, has imagery of I'm back to myself, right? 
if you go into the hospital and you have surgery, uh, you know, and I have a broken bone and they put a pin in there and then I'm healed and I'm able to use my arm just as it was, right? For many people, that language of healing sometimes does not describe or, or suggest a destination to which they believe they will ever get to. Reverend Krebin has a favorite quote from the author Anne Lamott about grief. She says when you lose somebody you love, it's like you break your leg, but it never quite heals right. Uh, so you always have a limp. And she says, so you learn, you, you learn how to dance again, but you always dance with a limp, right? It's okay not to be the same person you were 10 years ago. It's okay to be in this different place. And, and hopefully we all, in many ways we all are. Now, some people may describe that and say, man, this pastor's crazy. You know, I'm, I'm healed. I'm back to where I was a couple of years after. I'm good and I'm, I'm where I was. My experience is that there are, especially those who are most affected, that's not the case. But other people may find their journey in different ways. We have to heal, I believe. I think we were built and created to heal. And I think that when we can heal, it makes us stronger. Jenny Hubbard, mother of Catherine Violet Hubbard. I started running again after Catherine died. And, and by no means am I a Nike ad, but I started running. I needed to do something. And so I was running one morning um, and I was on the treadmill and I literally had to hop on the rails of either side of the treadmill and hit the back button. She heard something a priest said in a podcast she was listening to. And he had said, athletes train. In part of their training, it's tearing of their muscles. They get torn and then they, they let them recover and then they come back again. And he said, let's not forget the heart is a muscle. I really do believe that we are not, we are not subject to one trial, one heartbreak, one hurt. Our life is a series of waves that are hurt and recovery and hurt and recovery. And that recovery, that healing helps us to become who we're intended to be. In our next and final episode, Newtown took the gifts from around the world, turned them into sacred soil, and made it part of a permanent memorial to the tragedy. Still Newtown is sound designed by John Pino. Our fact checkers are Janet Curtis, Margaret Osborne, Melanie Formosa, and Mallory Lawrence. Our editor is Cindy Carpian. Our assistant producer is Sabrina Garone. Our interns, Paul Keegan, Megan Briggs, Isabella Giardina, and Hilary Jean-Bart. The executive editors are Terry Sheridan and J.D. Allen. Our media partner is the Newtown Bee. I'm Davis Donovan. <laughs>